Am I loved? You know, that's, that's perhaps the foundational question. This question, am I loved? We've already been singing about it, haven't we? We've been driving home this idea of being called deeper and deeper into love. I think a huge part of Sundays is coming and being reminded of some answers to this question. We know as human beings in our relationships to one another that saying it one time back at the beginning of marriage, back at the beginning of life, is not enough to sustain us. We don't just hear this one truth and say, okay, it was said once back in 1984, I guess I'm good, I guess I'm loved. This idea of it being so foundational is backed up by all kinds of research and our own experience, which is this. That the question of am I loved actually begins being asked and answered before we have language, right? Even more amazingly, it begins in the womb. So not even, not even at language, but we have the ability to send and receive messages of love in the womb. I bring this up because this is where our passage leads. And for us as a church, this season that we've been in, in asking God for some special grace and some special cleansing and some special new direction with some things, we know this truth, that we grow where we are loved. We grow where we are loved. This is why families are so important, right? This is why families hold such power as sort of a greenhouse for growth. Next hour, we have little Annalise and little Amelia being dedicated. We have some baby dedications. I guess we're doing the A's right now. Um, And since we're not doing them in this service, I wanted to just share with you that the baby dedications this week fit so powerfully into the text that we're going to look at, which is commonly called the prodigal son. We could also call it the merciful father, right? We all could argue between cats and dogs being better. We all know that dogs are better, so we don't have to have that argument anymore. Here's what's really, really good for cats. It's good that cats start as kittens. Um, I have two adult cats, and uh, one of my adult cats has followed a pattern that my other adult cats have followed, and he has begun to spray things near and far around our house. Not long ago, he actually tried to spray one of my children. (laughs) And literally Wednesday night, as I came in and was decrying our cat's new habit of spraying things, the same cat, while I'm talking, goes to our entryway and vomits up all over. Now, I know what I should have said. I should have said this. I should have said, poor kitty. It doesn't feel well. What can I do to help it? I don't always do what I should. Do you know who said that? My beloved wife said that. Do you know what I said? Something to the, something to the effect of this. I present to you exhibit A, and I rest my case as to why this adult cat should be put up on eBay. 
Adult cats starting as kittens is a really, really good thing. Here's what's true of everyone in this room. Everyone in this room started as a cute little baby. I think it's actually a really powerful exercise to visualize adults in your life, maybe teenagers in your life, maybe toddlers in your life, and to remember them as a cute little baby. All of that stirs in us as human beings, right? All that it prompts in us to want to come and help this needy individual and this beautiful, wonderful, fascinating gift of a person. This message that we're going to hear this morning um, is, is a call sort of in our own life to remember. In fact, one of your first community questions this week is don't forget to remember. The Bible is chock full of the value of carving out time to stop and remember, to stop and think. Um, but it's also for us collectively as a church, um, just just to, to be called out into some things that, again, churches can tend to wander away from. Um, and, and that's my prayer. Um, my daughter told me this. Uh, she's home from college. She goes to a Christian college. She said, she found out that the uh, text this week was the second half of Luke 15. Luke 15 is the prodigal son story. And she said, Dad, she said, no chapel speaker knows what the other chapel speakers are talking about. She said, we've probably had five chapel speakers this semester already talk on the prodigal son. <laughs> I'm like, well, you're getting another one tomorrow, meaning today. Um, amazingly, at camp this week, I asked one of my daughters when she was home from winter camp, um, and I said, I said, what did God teach you? What did God show you? And she began to roll out um, Luke 15 and the prodigal son. And my little daughter, Kaya, is there. And she heard the first part of Luke 15 last week because she was in church and she was paying attention. And here's what she said. She said, that's what we talked about. And then Cassie goes, Luke 15, right? And Kaya's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. I love it. Now, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hear from one of our theologians that went up. We're all theologians, right? Doesn't matter if we're good or bad ones necessarily, but we are all theologians, so no pressure, David. Uh, but David Adam was up at camp, so I want you to come on up. And, um, and David's going to share with us this. I've, I asked him, I said, how many retreats, camps, things have you been on as a kid growing up here at NBC? He said, probably eight or nine. I think that's probably true. And here's my question for you is what did, what did God say to you specifically? Like, like, how did it hit you personally as you went on this time and, and what made it different? What did God show you? So this weekend, I went into it not expecting very much because it was going to be a thousand kids and I didn't know how they were going to make it personal with that many, but they exceeded my expectations and um, it got me in my heart this weekend. And we, it was on the prodigal son and the pastor made a big deal of the father not being fair to the younger son who came back. And um, the older son felt slighted. And for a second, I was like, yeah, the, the older son's wrong. He should be celebrating with the, the younger son. But uh, the pastor went on to talk about um, an example in his own life where his wife's dad was on his deathbed. And... Uh, Two hours before he died, he accepted Jesus into his heart. And at the moment, the pastor said that he was like really excited and joyful. But later, he was like, how does someone who's lived their whole life in sin, while I have been up here preaching for 13 years, um, get to just walk in at the last moment? 
And that got me because I think I had the same kind of mentality. Uh, fortunately, the, the pastor had an answer for that. <laughs> and uh, he said that since we all deserve to not be in heaven and have the wages of our sin, that it doesn't matter who accepts Jesus or when they accept Jesus, that God is going to allow them into heaven if they make the choice. So that really opened my mind and my heart to just be more open-minded and joyful when people come to Jesus. And it gave me a, a new sense of like, just, I don't know. It, it, it would just, it just, it surprised me because again, I didn't think I would learn that much at this camp, but uh, yeah. And it was, it was a really good time. Awesome. Thank you, David. Let's thank David. You can sit down. Thanks, bud. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll keep singing. God, I thank you that you're not fair. Um, I thank you that you're just. And God, I thank you that um, our own sense of fairness that we might impose on you um, isn't what you're bound to. Father, thank you for touching David. God, I thank you for his humility and joy just to come up and share ways that you surprise. And God, I, I trust that this morning you can surprise us with your grace. You can surprise us with a depth of love that we haven't known before. So God, we invite that. Uh, We pray that we'd submit ourselves to that. And God, as we come on Sundays, we bring. God, we bring ourselves, but we also bring our money. God, we bring our heart. We bring our mouth to sing praises. God, we bring our arms and our words to welcome and to accept and to receive and to encourage. And so God, we bring all of that to you. Uh, We're grateful that we get to be a part of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, music stirs us in ways that's kind of hard to explain. It hits us in our emotion and sort of bypasses some things sometimes. And it's not just the notes that are important, but it's what comes between the notes, right? Those of you who know a little bit about music and maybe read music understand this, that the rests are written into the music. And when the rest and the notes are played just so, it communicates the real heart of the message. This is true with our speech as well. Um, Words are vital to conveying meaning, but without the proper rests in between, without what's going on in between, um, the message can be twisted. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. The way I always write this in my notes is I write this. Come as you are, dot, 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 but don't stay that way. What do the three dots represent? Rest. Breathe. (laughs) Stop between the two. Here's why. If we say, come as you are, and very quickly right after, we say, come as you are, but don't stay that way. No matter our tone, it could be understood this way. All of us have received an apology that sounds something like this. Pete, I'm really sorry for da 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 but now it doesn't matter what else I say here, I have just negated everything before the but, right? Pete, I'm really sorry that I did this, this, and this. I can be really specific. I can be very factually accurate as to what I'm sorry for. But, you know, you caused me to act that way. But, 
I was having a really bad day. But doesn't it rob you, doesn't it rob the meaning of the apology, right? We've all had this. We've all said this probably. So come as you are, but don't stay that way could very easily be a mixed message. And a mixed message, which is something like this. Hey, stop it some more. Stop doing that. Knock it off, right? It's confusing at best. But a mixed message could be really, really destructive at worst. So come as you are, but don't stay that way. Could be something along the lines of this. Come as you are, as long as you show us that you are trying really, really, really hard to change all those awful parts about you. It could be something like this. Come as you are, but make sure that you change before you come. Come as you are, but make sure you're all cleaned up and nice and don't rub me the wrong way. Those could be what the sort of the messages that are heard if we say, come as you are without the dot, dot, dot. And we get right to, but don't stay that way, right? I think this, I think the vast majority of people, both sitting in this room and who will walk into this room for the first time this coming year, will have a propensity to lean towards hearing it as, come as you are, but, and then getting to the other part. Make sure you're trying really, really hard to be good. Make sure that you're cleaning up the mess that you are. Make sure that people don't find out the shame. Whatever, however people might sort of fill in that message. Today is, uh, is continuing Jesus' lost trilogy. And it's really not a trilogy, it's four stories, right? It's in Luke 15. We have a lost sheep, we have lost coin, and we have two lost sons. And the story drives us to this question if we're listening, am I lost? And this morning, we're going to unveil not only that part of the question, which we already looked at last week, but we're going to unveil a second question, which is this. Do I celebrate or do I condemn lost people coming to the Father? Do I celebrate or do I condemn lost people coming to the Father? So Luke 15 is where we're at. You can turn there if you would like. Bob Goff says this, The way we treat people is a report card on how far we've come in turning our beliefs into our biographies. I love that. It's easy to, to, to love those who never leave us. Right? The faithful friends, the faithful worker, the faithful roommate, the faithful family member. It's easy to love those who mostly agree with us. No one agrees with everyone on everything all the time. That's boring. Where it gets tested is when people are unfaithful to us. When people disagree with us. When people just sort of flat out rub us the wrong way. Will we mimic Jesus or remain where we are? Will we mimic Jesus or will we remain where we are? You know, in thinking about baby dedications this week and how well this folds into our topic this morning, this powerful idea that people grow where they are loved uh, lands really strong. Now, I mentioned that babies are cute and fascinating. Some of you parents remember just staring at your baby and every little tiny movement, every little crease in their upper knuckle fascinated you. Just so fun to watch this little creature, right? So babies are cute and fascinating, but they're also loud and needy and moist, right? 
And those of you who enter into this world, you're like, your whole world gets wetter and you're like, what is happening to my life? Like, my neatly controlled life is changing because of this baby. Now consider a crying baby in church. Crying babies in church, uh, often will start up and do their thing. And oftentimes I think people's initial thought is, oh, poor child, right? Unlike me with the cat, right? Because it's a baby. But very quickly, even in church, can't we go, okay, enough, baby. And we could even get to a place of saying, is someone going to do something about that baby? And our compassion quickly goes in this south direction. Now, maybe we catch ourselves. We go, that's a rude way to think. Like, maybe I should pray for the baby. That baby's needy. How about an airplane? Man, we've all got some stories about that. I usually am on the apologizing end of that story, just so you know. Here's what we would not do. None of us would say this out loud, and none of us would feel this in our heart. We would never say to a baby, hey, would you clean up that whole crying in church thing before you show up at church? We wouldn't say that, because that's psychotic, right? Jesus might point to the crying babies in our midst, the ones that might be annoying us, distracting us, the ones that we don't know what to do with, and Jesus might say this, become more like a crying baby. Become so safe and secure in this place that you're willing to let others know what's going on on the inside by your cry, rather than politely putting on a facade. Maybe Jesus would point to the crying baby, stop the whole service, and say, watch and learn. (laughs) Mom, do your thing. Dad, do your thing. Comfort that baby. Nurture that baby. Everyone just stop what you're doing. Turn off for the front and just look at the crying baby. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. People grow where they are loved. I want these ideas launched lodged into our mind. This passage in Luke um, is one of those come-as-you-are passages. Not even a dot, dot, dot. Come as you are, full stop. As we read this text, just let us say, come as you are, and let us let that rest on us. Let's offer that to other people. Uh, If you've always thought that a good use of church time would be to watch a Pixar short and you missed last week, bummer for you. We watched a Pixar short last week. It's called Lou. Go find it. It's a great little, um, it's a great little short that tells this powerful story. Um, and it, and it does this for us. It does a lot of things, but it reminds us that a good lost and found story gets people cheering for the restoration moment. And what we see with Jesus is this. He tells three stories and he gets even the, the grumpy grumbling Pharisees sort of leaning in and cheering that isn't it a good thing when that restoration moment happens. And then he does this. He offers the surprise twist. The turn in the story is found this morning. It's that there is a fourth story. What's the fourth story? It's the older brother. And the story is unfinished, which means Jesus leaves room for wonder. Jesus leaves room for an invitation. Jesus leaves room for our own minds to populate. How is that ending going to happen? It's really a very gracious invitation of sorts, and it is targeted at who these stories are primarily for. What prompted the stories? It's found in verses 1 and 2. It's grumbling Pharisees. What are they grumbling about? They're grumbling about the condemned, notorious sinners dining with Jesus, eating lunch with Jesus, having a meal with him, which was far more than refueling. It was a sign of welcome and a sign of friendship. Verse 11, 
Here we go. Chapter 15. And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of my property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Let me hit pause for a moment. Let me give you some sort of Near East nuance. You've probably heard some of this before because Luke 15 is preached on a whole bunch. But there are some things that would land on a on on the first listeners of this story <gasps> that would have kind of caused them to gasp. And we might miss it because we don't live sort of in that culture. First of all, this, demanding an inheritance while dad was still alive. This is in essence saying... Dad, I wish you were dead. Now remember, as it is today, the highest value in this culture is not, uh, is not wealth and possessions. It's not looks. Maybe those are more our struggle here. What's, what's the highest value? It's honor. It's respect. There's a shame-honor sort of economy going on. So for a younger son to come and say, in essence, I wish you were dead. He's essentially saying this, I want your stuff without having to have you. Now, dad's in a non-Near East setting. How does that make you feel? Yeah, pretty bad. Bad on multiple levels. What does it stir? What would it stir in you if your, if your younger son came and did this, right? So that's, that's going on. There's two sons. It is the older brother's responsibility. I'm close friends with an older brother raised in a, in a Near East setting. And in a totally different thing, about two months ago, we were talking, and he brought this out, not in relation to this passage. But it is the older son's responsibility to step in and allow the father to save face, to settle this dispute. To say, younger bro, that's not how this is going to happen. And the, the older bro is nowhere to be found in this. He doesn't step in. He doesn't settle the dispute. He doesn't seek to make reconciliation. He doesn't seek to have anyone save face. Here's what's probably perhaps most shocking in the story is the father gives what the son asks for. He divides it up. Now, by law, it would probably be about a third. If there's two sons, the older son, by law, gets a double portion. So one-third of his estate is given to this younger son. And off he goes to the distant country. What's the distant country? Well, the distant country is a slap in the face on the home country, right? More shame. Shame on his own people. He then gets a job working with pigs. What's a big deal with pigs and, and Jewish people? They're the most unclean. They're the most reviled of all, right? They're not only forbidden, but they're unclean. And now, watch this, he's longing to dine with them. He's longing to have a meal 
with pigs. We already saw early on that Jesus gets in trouble for having a meal with what Gentiles, or with what uh, Pharisees might call Gentile dogs. So now this guy is saying, gosh, it would be better if I was having a meal with pigs. This is far beyond how gross it might be to us. We think it's kind of gross to go and mimic that, but what would be lost on most Gentile Americans would be how utterly repulsive this would be. So the son makes this calculated risk before he goes to his father, no doubt, and he decides, even though he is severing ties with his family, I'm sure he thought forever, because there's no coming back from this, right? He makes a calculated risk that it's better that I get the stuff now and get to leave. What is he seeking? He's seeking his own happiness, unquestioned. And he makes a calculated risk to do so. He goes and parties and he spends and he ignores reason and he ignores prudence. What does this lifestyle bring you? It brings you a lot of friends, right? While the money is flowing, while the good times are flowing, this kind of living attracts people, doesn't it? But it attracts a certain kind of person. Uh, it, it attracts a certain quality or lack of quality of friendship. And some of our stories in this room could attest to that. They go, man, I've had people come around me when times were good and it wasn't what I thought it was. You know, some of our most painful lessons occur in seasons when we are off in a distant country living recklessly. Think geographically for a moment about New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco are filled with prodigals right now. They are literally in the distant country. They have gone as far away geographically from their home as they possibly can without getting wet, right? With a giant ocean, without leaving the country. So they have gone to the coast and they are right now in the midst of reckless living. Perhaps, in essence, spending all the investment that their family has put into them. Goes on every single hour, spending and squandering. Some in this room know firsthand the pain of a loved one who right now is living it up in a distant country. The pain is real and terrible and frightening. Try as you might, you might be thinking, what are they doing right now? You might wake up in the middle of the night and you go, what are they doing right now? Where are they? Who are they with? Are they okay? How long is this going to go on? So we sit with that every single week. The results of the younger son's lifestyle hit really fast and hard. Sunshine turns to rain, rain turns to a storm. The Bible says it this way, you plant the wind, you harvest a deadly tornado. That's what comes on this young man. When he looks around and he thinks that pig food is a preferable uh, meal to his current diet, um, it's time to reassess your life at that point, right? So the story goes on. I want you to take hope in this one fact, and that is this, that living in the distant country, living it up in the distant country, does not last. There is an end date to the spending and to the squandering and to how fulfilling and exciting that is. 
Time is on your side if your loved one is out there. Famine always comes. And famine produces what famine produces. You know what it produces? It produces desperation. And desperation is a gift to all of us. Not all of us take it. But desperation offers us this huge, wonderful gift, and that is this. It can, doesn't always, but it can get us to face some hard truth about ourselves. Desperation is a wonderful gift because it gives us clarity. If you have a prodigal in your life, if you are the prodigal right now, I would pray desperation and famine come sooner rather than later. And I would pray this, that when desperation hits, when famine hits, that it would turn prodigals back to God and not dig their heels in further away from God. So desperation has a work to do in the lives of the lost. Here's another crucial question that haunts all of us at some point in our life. Not only am I loved that we started with, but here it is, ready? Is there a path back? Is there a path back? Every single person in this room has wrestled with or is wrestling with this right now in their own lives. And then we think about the broken relationships, the severed beauty, all these different things. Is there a path back? Look at verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, some of your translations say, when he came to his senses, <laughs> when his senses came back to him, the ESV translates it in the most literal of ways, which is when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's the pain in his life. It's the utter disgusting circumstances he finds himself in that causes his mind to kick in and work again. You think about people who are living the party lifestyle. What happens is the more numbing that goes on, the more numbing needs to happen, right? Maybe this is the first actual quiet moment he's had to stop and really think in a long time. And when he does, he comes to his senses or comes to himself. Here's what's beautiful. He'd lost his mind. He was going to the Father, leaving all of this, going to this in country, but he lost his mind, and we find in this moment, here's what happens. His prodigal mind comes back to him. This is the power God's given to human beings. Logic and reason are a gift to us. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. And when we lose our mind, God's gracious to us and gives us our prodigal mind back so we can think. So what's he thinking about? My life stinks, literally, right? And he begins to imagine a preferable future. He begins to imagine some, some realities that might be present for him. When I was dating Becky, uh, she had two really stunning, beautiful, purebred Siberian huskies. 
And, um, and one of them was a female, and one of them was a male, and the male's name was Cody. And he was a, an absolutely stunning specimen, uh, but he had the brain of a tree stump. He, he, was, he was able to pull strong and fast, but these are sort of like notoriously smart animals, and, and he, yeah, just got the short end of the stick on that one. And what he would do is he would get out regularly and run away, and Siberian Huskies are bred to run far and fast, right? And so he would get out, and he would get lost regularly, and one time he got out, and we did what good pet owners do. We went out searching for Cody, and we're looking all over the place for this dog, and the radius of a husky is large. We were back at the house. It's dark by now. We're all sitting in her house at Bowes Lane and Camden Avenue, when all of a sudden we hear honking going on. And we're like, what is that? And we regularly have accidents out in front of there. So I remember we all went running outside. And here is Cody the dog sitting in the left turn lane, a 10-second walk from his house. And he is staring this way at the car honking at him, trying to make the left, when his house is right here, 10 seconds away. And he always had this look on his face. He has a little tongue that would go... So here he is, like staring at this honking car, and we are like, Cody! And he came home. Now, here's the wonderful thing. Animals don't have the brain of a human being, right? Even the smartest of them. Some of them are very phenomenal at finding their way home. Cody was not blessed with this at all. But Cody didn't, he wasn't out running around, and he didn't have a sense of like, look at my life, right? I should probably get back, and, and he didn't have this whole reasoning thing going on. He didn't have anything going on, to be honest. But here's the gift that God gives to human beings. is He, he gives us, no matter what state that we are in, he gives us the ability to think, to stop and think. Christians ought to be the deepest, best thinkers in our city. We got to be those who are known to stop and ponder deeper realities and not just stay entrenched in our neat, careful, safe, comfortable things, but to wrestle with hard questions. And we got to train our mind up in this way and we got to celebrate when people begin asking really threatening questions of us as Christians. And if you ever have someone say, hey, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Do you believe in the Bible? Yeah. Well, what about... And they start firing away at things. Ever have your heart rate sort of go up? And you're like, here we go. I'm sure there's probably a good answer. Lord, give me a good answer for this. Let us not be a church that says, well, who can really know those things? We don't understand the mind of God. Let's just get back to these few things that I can rattle off. Man, let's think. Let's walk with people as they are thinking about difficult, hard things. There are barriers to belief um, that, that just using our mind is good. And what we see in this is beautiful, that he, he has a change of mind. By the way, repent literally means a change of mind. It's a change of direction. His mind changed. His thinking started to clear up and change. And then his, his heart began to change. And eventually, his direction changed. His feet followed suit of that. He walked back and took action. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
and before you. I'm no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robes and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So on his return flight coming back home, there was yet another calculated risk, wasn't there? How would the father respond? We actually get inside the mind of the prodigal a little bit. He's sort of weighing the options and weighing what, what can I imagine? And what his brain was able to imagine uh, was not what happened. He comes back and there's no probation period recorded, right? There's not a litany of questions. There's not a signed contract to guarantee this will never happen again. He doesn't even get to finish his well-rehearsed speech. Robe, ring, Sandals, status, reputation, and honor, all of it restored. Who knows where those items were lost or pawned off in his wild living. Rejoicing and thick steak on the menu. The young man dared to dream that dad might be able to tolerate him. If I just work hard, keep my nose clean, keep out of sight, maybe I'll be able to survive. Instead, the father amazed him with grace. We need to pray that returning prodigals will meet the father before they meet the older brother when they're coming back to church. Oh, that they would meet the father, right? Oh, that we would be ambassadors of the father's heart toward prodigals and not ambassadors of the older brother's heart. Toward prodigals. Prodigals matter to God and they are wondering right now. At the end of this distant country that I've been exploring. What waits for me back home? Many if not most can't even imagine. That restoration, honor, status, return of identity and inheritance are even a thing. That's grace. I think many are taking a calculated Risk. I think they might expect to slip in and merely survive. What a wandering prodigal deserves is a wildly boisterous party that just celebrates their presence back at the Father. And here's our question, church. Will we, as a church community, will we surprise them with love? Will we surprise them with the amazing grace the Father showed? Or will they receive the welcome that they think they deserve? Worse yet, will we remind them of the welcome they think they deserve and then treat them in kind? Think about sheep, coin, and the first son, the youngest son. They're all lost, but they're not lost in the same way. Maybe you see yourself as a sheep. Maybe your story is that you naively wandered away. Maybe you see yourself as the coin. What happened to the coin? It was misplaced. It was forgotten. Right now, today, there are misplaced, forgotten souls. That's how they feel. The son's lostness is neither of those, is it? He willfully chooses 
to go and get lost. Tells his dad to get lost. Tells his family to get lost. Tells his people to get lost. Ultimately, he's telling God, get lost. And then he goes and gets himself good and lost in the process. The younger son's a runaway. I don't know if you're a naive wanderer, if you're a misplaced soul, or if you're a runaway. But if you count yourself found this morning, you ought to celebrate the multifaceted, amazing grace and love of our God. That he would call and draw wanderers and runaways like he does. You know, each of these first three stories follows this progression. Lost, found, reunited, rejoicing. And then we get to the older brother's story. And his story is the final scene. The older brother is not a runaway or a stray. He faithfully has stayed put. He's working the farm. He never leaves. And he's lost. This is true to our experience. We can live in the same house and be estranged from one another. Right? Lost relationally. Even though we live on the same property. So the older brother's story is this. Lost. Found. Because he's not out of the father's sight. But there's no reunifying. And there's no rejoicing yet. Right? The story is unfinished. I'm not spoiling anything because you know the story. Let's read it. Verse 25. Now the older son was out in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Big brother is watching, isn't he? And he's furious. In every sense of the word, you look at big brother and he's this. He's bound and determined. Big brother is bound and determined. He's bound to duty. He's bound to doing the right thing. He's bound to watch the farm, and he's bound to joyous, joyless comparison. He's also determined. He's determined to vent some of his anger to the entreating father. He's determined to remind dad of his resume, his hard work. It's probably overinflated, right? That he's never disobeyed a command. He's also determined not to party. Bound and determined leaves big brother outside the party, away from the family table. It reminded me of this. Jesus said this, that in the last day, there's going to be many, not a few. He said there's going to be many big brothers. And they're going to come and they're going to say this, Lord, Lord, did we not? You guys fill it in. What, what, what do they say there? Lord, Lord, did we not what? 
various versions of serve you, right? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff? And what is Jesus' reply to these people? What is it? Away from me. I never knew you. We were estranged from one another, even though you were in my house doing work in my name. You were bound and determined, but you weren't in relationship with me. That's a haunting, terrifying verse for any of us who've been raised in the church. To say, wow, we could get it all wrong. We could do all this stuff and in the end not know Jesus and have him not know us. Huge difference between naming the name, doing the stuff, being in the right location, and finding all of it to be law, bound and determined. Another place in Ephesians, or the Ephesians church in the book of Revelation, Jesus is talking to the seven churches. And he says to this church at Ephesus, I see your hard work. I see all your determination. I see all this faithfulness. But what is the message to the Ephesians church? Do you remember? You've lost your first love. He says, go back and do the things you did at first. Go back and do those things. Because what's happened is, this isn't a love relationship. This is a performance. Sadly, the son views the father more as a slaveholder as a boss, and he can't get his head around the miracle of grace that is taking place in front of him. Instead, as David aptly pointed out, all he can see is the unfairness of it all, right? In his estimation, unfair. Man, those of you with older or younger brothers or sisters, you get this. I mean, this is just, this oozes out of sibling rivalry that goes on. This is one of the great challenges of parenting is we want, to, we want to bring God's grace and mercy into this picture. How gracious the father is. I hope you see this. Even while the older son is missing this, he's entreating him. The verb here is a para verb. A paraclete is the Holy Spirit that comes alongside, is a helper. The father is coming alongside the older brother. It's a wooing. It's an invitation. Do you see what he does? He reminds him of all that he has. He reminds him. He wants his older son to come to himself. Here's your true identity. All that I have is yours. He's wooing and inviting. This makes me wonder. I wonder now back out of the story... If you can place yourself, use sort of a redeemed imagination to be an onlooker to this setting, what do the faces of the Pharisees who were grumbling look like? I mean, how do they transform from the start of Luke 15 to the end of Luke 15? Are they tighter and more stern? I mean, how's the chapter start? They're grumbling against Jesus. Jesus launches into a story to answer them. Or do some of their faces melt and change and soften? Again, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us how it ends. But I wonder that if they're able with enough humility to see themselves. Let me close with this idea of asking you who you are in this story. 
Let me speak to prodigals for a moment. If you're a prodigal, let today be a wake-up call. Honestly, look around and evaluate how you're doing as a runaway from God. All of our choices bear a certain kind of fruit, right? We look around and we, we assess our life. How are you doing, prodigal? I pray today is a wake-up call. Maybe you identify with the older brother. Let me say this. Your story is not written yet. We could all be tempted into sort of this imposter self. And I would say, let go of your imposter self and come to your real self. The imposter self is bound and determined. They identify themselves as the one who didn't run away. They identify themselves as the hard worker. They identify themselves, like the church at Ephesus at the time, of doing all the right stuff all the time, and they pride themselves in it. The Father is offering this. Instead of being bound and determined, He's offering you to be free and willing. It's a, it's a different way of living to live as a response to love rather than trying to earn or make up for love. Let me say a special word to parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, older siblings, younger siblings of prodigals, but particularly those of you parenting prodigals. Parents of prodigals can be left with some really haunting questions. Maybe top of our list will be this. Will my prodigal ever come home? God, will they ever come to their senses? Will they ever come to themselves? Parents of prodigals ask this, what, what was it that I did or didn't do? God, what, what was it that I said or, or didn't say? Parents of prodigals can ask this question, was I too strict or demanding? Or was I too lenient and trusting? I don't have answers for all those things. I do know you can beat yourself up. I know others can shirk their blame. Here's what I want you to remember this morning. I want you to remember that Adam and Eve had perfect parents. And they walked away from God. I want you to go read your Bible and realize God has always had trouble with his kids. The whole nation of Israel wanders away. They grumble, they complain, they actually commit adultery, to use a, a married metaphor, they commit adultery against God. They say far worse than we want your stuff without wanting you, Father. They act that out. When King David was wandering, there's a scene where God says to him, I've given you all of this stuff and you betrayed me. And the message isn't one of shame. It's one of showing the great grace of God. I've given you all of this. Watch this. And I would have given you so much more. Come to your senses. Parents or prodigals, hold on to hope. Hold on to God. Lean on the community you're in. And don't ever stop caring. Don't ever stop praying for your prodigal. And nurture your heart so it's ready to receive your prodigal when they come home. Aren't you thrilled in your own life that the last chapter is not written yet? We're still here. We're still breathing. We still have choices to make. Hold out hope that the last chapter in your prodigal story is not written yet. The Ragamuffin Gospel is a book I read maybe 20 years ago. It's by a guy named Brendan Manning who had his own demons and struggles and he shared very openly about his struggle with alcohol as an active priest. He says this in that book. He says, God wants us back more than we could possibly want to be back. 
The nature of His love for us is outrageous. In different settings, in different seasons, Luke 15 and the prodigal son hit us in different ways. Would you close your eyes and ponder this reality? We opened with babies and in a couple moments we're going to do some baby dedications. And it was a baby 2,000 years ago that brings us together this morning. It's why we're worshiping. I love this thought that I read somewhere this week. It says this, the disciples didn't look and say, what is this world coming to? But instead they said this, look what has come into the world. And this world has never been the same because of those disciples who trusted and knew and were received and dined with Jesus. And he sends them out as he sends us out as friends and as family. Healed, willing, and free. God, thank you for your revelation to us, not just in the written word, which we treasure this morning, God, which we look to to be sufficient. But it's not all sufficient. God, the things that we read in here are spiritually discerned. We thank you for your very presence in our lives this morning. We hold on to and rest in the reality that your presence is here. And God, you give us spiritual ears and eyes to perceive things. And the flesh is no help at all in understanding and discerning these realities. God, we look to you and celebrate you as the one who has intervened in our lives to find this story stunningly beautiful. God, give us grace today, even as we close in a couple of minutes, to look into the eyes of other people as precious gifts. Help us to have eyes to see them and respond to them as you have. In your name we pray. Amen.